Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of the Scripture to First Thessalonians. Uh, we'll start in verse 17. Good to be back. Certainly missed you all, but trust you were very well served by Ben Grady and Rob Jones. My family enjoyed a week up in Roanoke, Virginia, making some memories. And um, we are certainly glad to be back and particularly glad to be here this morning. The text has, has already been read. And the main point in a very, very straightforward text is that after anxiously waiting, Paul is overjoyed and comforted by the reported faith of the Thessalonians. After anxiously waiting, Paul is overjoyed and comforted by the reported faith of the Thessalonians. You'll recall that we're at the end of an apologetic section where Paul is defending uh, his conduct while in Thessalonica against charges that he may have been there for greedy purposes, um, etc., that he's been defending his conduct there, and now he turns and he addresses his leaving, he addresses his continued absence, his desire for his return, and kind of his posture during all of this in, in this morning's passage. He says that uh, they were torn away from the church at Thessalonica but since we were, verse 17, torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. That word, torn away, it's the same word that, would be, that was used to describe children who were orphaned away from their parents. Uh, and Paul uses it not of the church here, but of himself. We were torn away away from you, he says. If that wasn't supposed to happen is, 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 is the idea, but he says it's what happened. And you remember in Acts chapter 17, what happened at Thessalonica and the riot and Jason, and then they made a deal, and then they had to leave. They had to flee. Their trip got cut significantly short. He says, of course, although we've been torn away in this Respect, we certainly have not been torn away from you in heart. We love you. We are desirous of you. We're affectionate for you. We, we are in anguish, really, because we don't know how you're doing. This theme of anxiety and angst really permeates this passage. That word endeavored, I should also mention, isn't just that they thought it would be a good idea to go back and visit. It suggests that they actually tried. It suggests that they did something. They, they made some efforts to actually try to go back, but, uh, but to no avail. And this, their effort to go back was not merely some kind of piece of formal ministry, which is why Paul makes it personal. I, Paul, again and again, wanted to come see you. Okay, He's not saying that because Silas and Timothy didn't care about it or something like that, but he's saying this isn't just a ministry checkbox. We didn't just desire to come see you generically. We'd, th th this is him personalizing it. But Satan hindered us, which strengthens that understanding that endeavor was they actually tried to do something, but something prevented them. Now, there is a lot of speculation about what exactly this is, that we are hindered by Satan. And I'll save you a lot of reading. Nobody knows. 
That's the conclusion. That's the conclusion. Um, but that doesn't stop me from giving my own speculation. I tend to think it has to do with how they were kicked out of Thessalonica. And then, if you recall, right down the road, they got kicked out of Berea. And it's very likely, in, in my judgment, that the Jews caught on like, hmm, maybe he could try to just go to the, or tried to come back. And so they set up a little bit longer term plan to resist this Jewish leather worker who was coming and telling about this man who has changed the world. Apparently, Timothy doesn't have any problem going back. And as it so happens, he's not indicted in the ruckus in Acts chapter 17. So perhaps it has something to do with how they got kicked out of Thessalonica and then Berea. Somehow Timothy was hiding in the woods or something. What all that happened? He has a clean name. Maybe he can get this. That maybe that's why he can go back, but Paul and Silas can't if they were all traveling together. It makes sense. It's it's a workable hypothesis. So Paul finally gives a reason as to why he didn't come back, despite his strong desire to do so and even having made efforts to do so. That's important. That's important. To bolster that kind of expressed earnestness, he adds what we see in 19 and 20. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Every pastor loves that verse. What's Paul saying? He says, you know, when, I st- when we stand before Christ, when he comes, we're going to hear about the coming of Christ later in the letter and in 2 Thessalonians. You know what we're going to boast over? You. You. That's what he says. Look, look at them. Christ. That's what he's saying to the Thessalonians. Look how glorious they are. Look how redeemed they are. Transformed by grace, called to kingdom and glory. Look! That is what he says he's going to boast over. He says this to other churches as, as well. Listen to that language. Our glory and our joy is for you, Paul says. That's what we will boast over. When you think of a crown here, by the way, don't think of a, a tiara or like a king's. You know, kind of the stereotypical crown you put on a king's head. This is the word for the crown of the victor in the arena or in the Olympic Games. This is more like what we would understand to be like a wreath. What is going to crown Paul's life and ministry? You. That will be the crown. These people that he has served and loved and pastored. And so obviously then he wants to go see them. He returns to his kind of anxious state of waiting to continue to narrate his side of the story. Okay, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith. What's the solution? It is to send Timothy from Athens. So remember, kicked out of Thessalonica, go to Berea, Berea, we go all the way down to, uh, we go over to, uh, to they, they end up, excuse me, in Athens, and it's not clear if, if Silas is there or, or with Paul, but, but what happens is, uh, he says, we, we, we waited so long, 
We had so much angst built up, and that word bear, that we could bear it no longer, is, is the word that would be used of like a watertight or even an airtight vessel. There had been so much angst and pressure built up when we could bear it no longer. We had to do something. We had to be willing to make compromises. And we can't undervalue this as a compromise. We just say, well, we were being willing to be left alone in Athens. Like, that's not the same thing as being left alone in Nashville with a cell phone. We just, you know, our friends and family are gone. No, no, no. This is a hostile city, a city that is full of idolatry. This is a man who's on the cutting front end, pushing back, bringing in to the Gentiles the kingdom of God. And he's saying, listen, this isn't an ideal solution because it involves two things. Number one, in my solution, I'm not coming. I've tried. But sacrifices have to be made. I've got to figure out how you all are. I've got to. He says, so I'm going to send Timothy in order to do that. And I'm going to be left alone in a potentially hostile city. Um, we just have to appreciate, I just want to pause and try to put ourselves in the position of Paul. And I couldn't come up with, I wanted to come up with a better illustration for this, but I just couldn't. The, the, the closest thing that I have is if you've ever been texting or calling or you know, on a phone call with someone or texting someone about something very important, someone that you care about, uh, and your battery goes dead, died. No charger, no nothing. Maybe you're spending the night, so it's like you're just phoneless. And you're wondering, what on earth are they thinking I did? Do they think I'm ghosting them? Do they think that I don't care about that last message they sent that was so heartfelt and then my phone died? What, like, what are they thinking? And as the days go by, oh, that's strange. That person didn't respond again. Oh, the next day, oh, they must not care. Oh, then, and so on and on and on. And, and, and he's and if you're if you're the person who's phoned, like, oh my goodness, I've got to at least touch base with them just to say, like, I haven't forgotten you. And that's exactly what he does. That's what he's doing here. And I would say that angst is is, is way way more than the illustration that I just gave. And so. The solution is to send Timothy. He calls Timothy our brother, okay, very common language, in the Lord Jesus Christ and God's co-worker, <coughs> excuse me, which is a really remarkable title. So remarkable that if you look back in the textual history, the manuscripts, a lot of scribes tried to correct that. And you see that in the bottom of your Bible, probably something like servant, because they thought, to say that Timothy was God's co-worker is like, what? No one, God doesn't have co-workers. He's like, but it's very obvious in the original manuscripts, the earliest and best manuscripts, God's co-worker. Why? What he's saying is, I'm not sending you back some like JV team Christian, okay? I'm not sending you back some kid. We're sending back Timothy and he's legit. He is legit as it gets under the Apostle Paul himself. And he's sending them back to establish, he's sending Timothy back, excuse me, to establish and exhort them. Paul hadn't finished what he was doing. The foundations are still, uh, that, that pavement's still wet, so to speak. All right, the, the whole, the, the, the structure is not quite steady. He sends them back to establish them and then to exhort and encourage them. He doesn't want them to be unsettled. But was it just out of the goodwill of his heart or general desire for sanctification? No, he makes it clear. He says in verse 3 that no one be moved by these afflictions. 
For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Second time he uses affliction. Just as it has come to pass and just as you know. He's not sending him back for generic Christian formation. He is sending them back to establish them and encourage them in the face of inevitable affliction and persecution, which in the context of Thessalonica is almost certainly a severe form of social uh, uh, persecution, being ostracized, particularly because of how closely wed religious and social public life were all kind of blended together in the culture. Being a Christian cost a lot. Okay, Being a Christian in Nashville costs almost nothing. Being a Christian there costs a lot, at least comparatively. Ostracized, cold-shouldered, left out, criticized, ridiculed, social persecution, despite not being the physical persecution that some of our brothers and sisters around the world experience, it is a legitimate category in Paul's thinking. shows up over and over and over. Social persecution is real persecution. He told them it would happen. This will happen to you if you're a Christian, he says. Remember how we told you it would happen? Like the, it's like this is the parent saying, I told you so. I'm, I've told you this is going to happen. Not in a scolding way, but this is what, it, when you sign up to follow Jesus, you will sign up for this. You will sign up for this indirectly. And for this reason, Verse 6, and he repeats the idea from verse 1 of chapter 3, when we could bear it no longer. He says, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn, that is to say I sent Timothy, back from Athens to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Because I knew you were suffering, and on top of my general love for you, and on, on top of the fact that you weren't fully established because I had to leave, and on top of the fact that I was torn away, he introduces a new fear here. The tempter. The tempter. Which he is later going, uh, well, no, that's er, earlier he said he's already referred to Satan hindering them. Paul's very aware of Paul's, uh, Paul is very aware of Satan's activity. He says, I am worried somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. First one is just in the mood, the, the Greek mood here suggests that he knew that Satan was up to something. That was beyond question. He lives that our, our labor might be in vain, our labor would be in vain is in the subjunctive mood, which is like, oh, I'm not sure. Maybe this would happen, which causes people to ask all sorts of questions that the text is not at all trying to answer about. Well, does it mean they weren't really a church? You were in Sunday school this morning. You know about trying to get answers out of the text that the text is not trying to answer. I would say to respond to Paul theologically here when he is giving a pastoral heart expression would be like criticizing David in the Psalms for saying, you know, where is God? Will you forget me forever? <laughs> David, did you not go to theology class, David? Okay, David, uh, he's very aware. He, he's not trying to give a fine a fine-tooth comb theology lesson. He's pouring out his, his heart here. We're going to see another example of it in the next section where he talks about now we live. Whoa, this is really strong language. But here's the bottom line. The bottom line is he's worried about the state and health of their souls. 
He's worried about the state and health of their souls. There is affliction. There is idolatry potentially at every turn. He is run off in the dark. What on earth is happening? I can't bear it any longer. Timothy, get over there. Do something. Relieve us of this anxiety. And then finally, we get the report. Remember, Paul at this point has gone down to Corinth. Told Timothy, sync up with me in Corinth. And can you imagine, just put yourself in his shoes, the time Timothy walks through that door or whatever it was where he saw Paul. And he says, I've got an update. I've got a report on the brothers and sisters at Thessalonica. Wouldn't it be very exciting? And what is the nature of Timothy's report? It's a great one. Fantastic report. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So he says, listen, when the, the report here from the church at Thessalonica is excellent. It's excellent. Their faith is in good shape. They aren't bitter about Paul. Uh, for uh, uh, against Paul for you know why he left. They have fond memories of him. They want to see him face to face as well. And if you're reading this along with kind of being inside Paul's mind here, you can just feel the incredible sigh of relief and joy. Oh, yes, yes. So much so. Listen to how he describes it. For this reason, brothers. The, the report, because of how good this report is, contrasted, juxtaposed with how anxious he was before it. For this reason, brothers, in all, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. So they're, they're continuing to be afflicted as well. But because of this good report, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, he says. Now we can we can live. If you are standing fast in the Lord, they are comforted back to life by the Thessalonians' faith and Timothy's report of it. They, they had so much angst. The idea here, again, we can't, we can't critique Paul theologically here. He's not trying to say that they brought him eternal life or all of a sudden he was physically dead, now he's physically alive. He's expressing these emotions that come out of this yearning. They were inhabiting this dead headspace, but now finally this is this shot in the arm. This jolts us back to life. Yes, the Thessalonians are fine. They're doing great. God is in fact holding them fast. They're keeping the faith. Oh man, I am energized by this, Paul says, despite affliction. He says, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? We are so joyful. We don't have, have you ever tried to express how much you love someone, but you just don't really have the words? Like, all right, I go for, I love you. All right, we got that one out of the way. All right. But it's like, uh, but like, I want to, there's something else. I don't know quite how to communicate it. Well, maybe I can show you. Ah, well, that still doesn't quite communicate how much. I love you or I, or I care for you. That's, that's the idea here. Huh. What else can we, well, we can say thank you to God. We can rejoice. But like if we have more than what we're capable of doing, that's how joyful we are over you. That's how, joy, that's how thankful we are to hear about your faith. 
an incredible amount of joy. And by the way, if you recall our very first sermon in the series, we talked about rejoicing over other people's faith from uh, verse chapter 1, verse 3. That they are, they are giving thanks, verse 2, chapter 1, to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He returns to the same theme here. He's not thankful for them because they served Him, at least in this particular passage. He's thankful and overjoyed because of their faith. Because of their faithfulness. It brings Him joy. Do other people's faith ever bring you joy? If not, why not? Are you ever encouraged by that person that has such a remarkable amount of faith? Or that person is so steadfast. He says, we were comforted back to life because we knew that you are standing fast. Not just limping along. You weren't limping along. You were standing fast despite affliction. So we don't know, we don't even have enough way to express our thanksgiving and our joy to God on your behalf. But, he adds this, as, there's an as here, as we pray most earnestly day and night that we may see you face to face, and supply what is lacking in your faith. He's Notice what he doesn't say. Now that i got a good report, I don't feel like I need to come. Say, no. It makes me want to come even more. I'm going to continue to pray eagerly day and night that I can come and fill up what's lacking. Fill up what's lacking. Because what we're going to notice here in the rest of the letter, that uh, there are some things lacking. Surprise, it's not a perfect church. But this is, I want you to feel... I want you to feel this and hear this, both. Paul's initial, despite what we're going to cover in the next couple of chapters, there's going to be some problems. Despite what we're about to go through in the text, I want you to remember that Paul's reaction, writing this letter back to them, having heard the whole report, is joy and thanksgiving. In other words, nothing that about what comes after this subtracts from his joy and thanksgiving. He knows about all the problems in the Thessalonian church because he's going to address a couple of them in the next couple chapters. But he knew about all those things before he wrote this letter back to them. You see what I'm saying? And what he says is, you know what my reaction was when Timothy gave me the full report? Parentheses, including some of the stuff that we got to get sorted out. Joy. Thanksgiving. That's his primary response. It wasn't nitpicking. It wasn't the person who says, oh, I'm so happy, but, and then there's a whole list of things wrong. There's some serious things that need to get sorted out, but his primary response is joy in his affliction as they stand fast in an affliction. After anxiously waiting, Paul is overjoyed and comforted by the reported faith of the Thessalonians. What can we learn from this very straightforward text? It seems to me that Paul, both here and in other letters, emphasizes suffering, affliction, the desire to do so well, and what affliction can do, and how to stand. How to stand in affliction. So I thought it would be wise for me to encourage 
us this morning about standing in affliction. Standing in affliction. What does that look like? A couple of points. A couple of points for standing in affliction. The first is this. Have a framework for suffering in place before you suffer so you can do so well. Have a framework in place before you suffer so you can do so well. Trying to learn the nature of suffering in the Christian life and how you can do so well while you are suffering is a losing strategy. It is a losing strategy. And I'm going to tell you why, but let me break this down. First, the need for a framework. The second, the need to have it before you suffer. So my mom cooked a lot when I was young. Who am I kidding? She still does, but I'm not there for it as much. And uh, occasionally she would make cakes and various confections. Um, And they all seem to have a lot of the same ingredients. Did you notice that? Uh, and what I what I tried is I tried some of these individual ingredients that made this delicious cake. So I took up some of the flour and I was like, this is disgusting. And I was like, no, the baking soda, this is what makes the I'll taste the baking soda. It's disgusting. Then the real spoiler was the vanilla extract. <laughs> oh, this one, y'all know what I mean. Oh, this one's going to taste great. Ah, didn't. It tasted a little bit bitter. It tasted, just wasn't there. The the smell betrayed the taste of it, okay? Am I right? I didn't like eggs. Here's a raw egg. Took Took a finger of the raw egg. Wasn't good. Uh, She had little blocks of butter cut up. I took a block of butter. Oh, the only thing that was good of any of it was the sugar. But this amazing thing happened. She put it all together in a certain way that was larger than the elements themselves. And I remember thinking, how can you put so many bad things together and come up with something good? Bad experience, bad experience, bad experience, bad tasting experience. My gustatory edition says that uh, that gustatory, that my, my the tasting that's a word for uh, a gustatory experience a tasting experience my experience tasting these things and the math that accompanies that if you put a bunch of stuff that tastes bad together you get something that is at least equally bad but perhaps even worse but that's not what happens apparently all of these individual bad things as I experienced them once my mom put it in the oven and mixed them up and did whatever she did they came out and it was oh. This is amazing. This is amazing. But there's no way you could tell that from sampling the individual bad things. There's no way. This is the Romans 828 cake that no one gets to taste in this life. We know that all things work out for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. But you can't taste that right now. When someone looks at you in suffering and says that verse, you want to slap them in the face. You're like, oh, I get it. I understand. I'm glad for that. But you have to know that there's a cake coming. And you're going to taste it. 
And you might even get tiny little nibbles of it in some sense, dim reflections of it. But there's a cake coming and all of these bad things, all of these individual sufferings, God is working to put them together, not to make like a monster bad thing, but to somehow in a way that none of us could imagine and none of us, frankly, trying to put these individual experiences of suffering together could ever fathom what's coming. But it is. There's a cake coming, the Romans 8.28 cake, and that will keep your perspective and, and keep you from despairing. That's the, why, do you need, why do you need a framework right there? You have to know the end goal. But why do you have to learn that before you start suffering? Well, let me give you another illustration. Imagine trying to teach swimming, trying to teach someone how to swim, uh, instructing someone on stroke, um, and their strokes through the water, uh, how to move their legs and all the rest of it, why they feel like they're drowning. How well do you think that's going to work? Anyone learn to swim while they were drowning? While they were going under the water? No, because you're freaking out. You're panicking. You don't have the perspective necessary to think about, oh, okay, the, this is, this is how I'm supposed to move my hand. And this is how I'm supposed to kick my leg. You're just saying, please help. That's about all you can do. You're panicking. You can't teach someone a framework. You can't teach someone a framework for suffering. You can't teach them about the 828 cake. While they are in the deep end of despair and losing their minds and suffering. Must have a framework. You need to have it in place ASAP. Point number one for standing well. Point number two, don't make the mistake of suffering in isolation. The people who suffer in isolation are generally speaking either one or two kinds of people. Number one, the kind of people who do life in general in isolation. So therefore when they suffer, of course, they do that in isolation as well. Or they're the person who is around a bunch of people but they feel like they're bothering people to share their suffering and they don't want to be a burden to other people. But the problem is the scripture says that we are supposed to bear one another's burdens. So that person sounds like they're being pious, but they're actually robbing the people around them of doing what the scripture commands to bear people's burdens. And there they are trying to hold it all up by themselves and their knees are buckling, but they feel they have to grit it out for the team. Don't make the mistake of suffering in isolation. Don't make the mistake of doing so. Oftentimes it ends very, very badly. The body of Christ is meant to bear each other's burdens in afflictions and in suffering and in being ostracized and in being shamed. You want people in with you the very least, you want people to know so they can pray for you. If you don't want people praying for you, do, do you believe what James says, that prayer is powerful and effective? Does anyone going through suffering not want tools appropriated with them, towards them, that are powerful and effective? I do, but there's no way for anyone to know that if you're suffering just in isolation. Don't make the mistake of suffering in isolation for either one of those two reasons. Number three. Afflictions are inevitable. Inevitable, excuse me, growing through them is not. <coughs> we read Romans 5. 
And this incredible, this incredible thing uh, is revealed to us in Romans 5. Like, like it is in other parts of Scripture, that there's a somehow a relationship between suffering and endurance, and endurance, character, and character, hope. But what you find in the fuller witness of the New Testament is that there's nothing about suffering in and of itself, in and of itself, that does anything for you. I have known many people who have suffered And at the end of their suffering, they were simply a more bitter, angry person. Angry at God, angry at people, grudge for 20 years against this family member for what they did. They don't have any better character. They they don't have endurance. They got pent-up anger, unresolved grief, doubts, all these anxieties. Afflictions are inevitable. Growing through them is not. So it's not the affliction that does the work because the same sun that melts the butter solidifies and hardens the clay. What matters here is how you respond to suffering. How you walk through the furnace, if you will, of suffering. How you do so with a framework, with some of these other things, with some of the things we've talked about, some of the things that we will talk about. The mindset with which we suffer, the hope with which we suffer, our understanding of our own identity when we suffer, our understanding of priorities when we suffer, an understanding of perspective when we suffer. Those are the things that will determine whether you are strengthened in the furnace or the gymnasium you might say of suffering or you're crushed by the weight. And you just, listen, you suffer and you just come out more a bitter, angry person shaking their fist at God. I've seen it many times. Afflictions are inevitable. Growing through them is not. And so, have a framework. Don't suffer in isolation. Beware of the tempter, but don't go devil hunting. I want people to know, Paul wants his people to know that Satan is in fact at work. That's guaranteed. And yet, it is simply not true that every time you suffer, you are doing battle against the rulers and principalities in the heavenly realms. This is not true. We live in a broken world. We we, we live in a world where there is... Sin, because of the effects of the fall and sin, there is brokenness, there is disease, there is cancer, there's all sorts of things. There are sinful people who sin against other people who aren't necessarily, or 99.999% of the time, demon-possessed. You need to be aware that Satan is at work. And yet, there is a danger in overly mystifying your suffering such that it changes how you see yourself in the world. You know what I am? Fighting the devil today. Your identity is the devil crusher. Wrong. Christ is the devil crusher. Your identity is in Christ. You you cannot put a narrative around your suffering where you end up being a hero wielding all the spiritual armor and that you are this val... You are someone conquering darkness like some video game or one of these epic movies, right? That's not you. That's Jesus. 
He already conquered. He gave the church corporately. It's corporate language in Ephesians, by the way. The armor. Know that Satan is at work. Know that there is supernatural things going on. But let me ask you a question. If you found out that your, let's say, physical affliction, say you get signed up for something like Job, and your physical affliction, okay, you know, you found out, uh, well, in one case it was, it was natural as a result of the fall, which is, of course, one sense unnatural. The other case, you got signed up and Satan was somehow directing, afflicting, uh, afflicting you, and you have this cancer. Let me ask you a question. Like, what, what would you do? Diff- how, how, why would that matter in terms of how you move forward through suffering? I would say that in most cases, in the vast majority of cases, you could throw out some, maybe some weird examples. In the vast majority of cases, it wouldn't. Guard your holiness. Guard your heart. Stand fast in affliction. Know that Satan is at work, but don't be a devil hunter spinning up a new story about yourself and about your life and positioning yourself as this hero overcoming Satan. What I would suggest is what you need to say is, Christ has overcome Satan. I have all the tools that I need to suffer. The tempter is at work. The devil roars about like a lion, and Christ will hold me fast. That's what I need to know. Next, thankfulness, perspective, and serving others. Secret weapons for standing well. Suffering as, I've, suffering, as I've mentioned many times before, causes the world to shrink down to the size of our pain. Really, any deep emotion does. Anxiety, grief, depression, physical pain, shame. Causes our world, which is this whole, I have the whole world, and then what happens is like that drowning person. The drowning person, brothers, just listen to me, the drowning person doesn't care about the person on the other end of the pool getting swimming lessons. The person who's drowning does not care if the person sitting on the pool deck is comfortable in their little chair. The person who is drowning or feels like they're drowning, their world shrinks down, and guess what they care about? Themselves. Now, not all self-focus is bad. Okay, not all self-focus is bad. Sometimes self-focus is inevitable. But what happens is the suffering oftentimes make our whole world shrink down so that what we see, what our mind's eye entertains every day is just me and my plight. Me and my affliction because it's so close, it's so real for us, it's so right before us. When we hurt, our hurt is at the front and center. When we, when we feel shame, it commands our attention. It commands our feelings. We just want to get rid of this feeling of shame or angst or whatever, and it just dominates our thought lives. Affliction brings about all of those things. These three elements are excellent for fighting the myopia, the the, the nearsightedness that comes with suffering. Thankfulness. As I'm suffering, can I continue? I have so many things to complain about in suffering. But can I make a conscious effort to intentionally remember the things I'm grateful for in the middle of my suffering? I'm perhaps hurting so bad, or I've been so humiliated by this coworker, I've been ostracized in this way. Whatever the case may be, how can I recite out loud, I am so thankful for this. I am so thankful for this, so that all the reasons you have to throw your hands up are countered by, thank you, God. Look at this kind of joy right here. I want to give you this kind of thanksgiving, this kind of joy for the the, the ways in which you have blessed me despite my suffering. Perspective, both temporally and eternally. 
One day is coming and is not here yet when every eye will be dried. And there, there will be a one point in redemptive history where there will be a physical flesh and blood human being who cries one physical last saline-ish tear, and that'll be the last one ever in this state of affairs, in this world. There, you have to keep perspective. People who tend to think that their suffering is forever, even when it ends up being forever in this life, struggle mightily because that extinguishes your hope. No hope. This is it forever. Serving others. I had a counseling professor in seminary where when people came to him, um, especially he was talking in the context of depression, one of his pieces of homework for people who came with him fighting depression was volunteering at the soup kitchen, which sounded to me initially so bizarre. What? And what he said, to use the phrase from Dr. Welch, is that depression bends inward. He said, I want people seeing me serving other people and getting outside of themselves. He said, when I initially say that to people, they feel insulted, like I'm telling them that they're self-centered. But I'm not. What I'm saying is what you're going through tends to make you self-focused. I want you serving others regularly and having your attention on other people who are suffering and giving your life to them and serving them. Thankfulness, perspective, and, th and serving others. These are secret weapons for standing well in suffering. And finally, certainly not least, is prayer. Live in the Psalms and don't let your theology crush your calling out. Super theologically heavy people struggle here. I'm just going to say it. They do. They struggle the worst because they don't want to make a systematic theological error in what they say in their prayer. But in suffering, that mindset is really going to hinder you. Because you're not going to be able to call out to the Lord like David does. Say, where are you, God? How long will you hide your face from me? Because that person thinks, oh wait, as a good systematic theologian, God does not hide his face from me. He will hold me fast. Perseverance of the saints. He's omniscient. He's everywhere. Why would I say such a silly thing? And I'm saying that you need to have one register for your theology, and that's great and fine. I'm all about theology. Trust me, I'm all there. But you have to have a space for relational, conversational, calling out to the Lord in prayer. Where you're not thinking, oh, well, I'm not sure if that was exactly the right wording. I promise you, in the qualified sense that I'm saying in this moment, God doesn't care. In the qualified sense I'm trying to articulate in this moment, God does not care. Call out to the Lord. You don't have to have all your theology right. Call out in suffering. Call out because prayer is powerful and effective. And don't let your do not let your desire for theological precision crush your calling out from your heart. I'm not saying to pray heresy, people. Please don't take what I'm saying out of context. What I'm saying is God is not up there nitpicking your theology. Job 6.26, he's suffering. His friends start nitpicking his language. Nitpicking some of the things he says. Remember what he says in Job 6.26? 
Do you think you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? Why are you nitpicking exactly what? Listen, I'm desperate here. I'm calling out. I want to free you to do the same thing. Prayer is powerful and effective. We have the example of David. Live in the Psalms. Call out to God. Don't let your theology crush your calling out. May we be a people who do not just endure, experience suffering, because that much is inevitable. But may we be a people who stand fast and suffer well. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for a Christ who has suffered so that we can suffer well. That we have a foundation to stand on that isn't just hopes and dreams. We don't have groundless optimism. We have hope grounded in promises from ages past that have been partially fulfilled and await culmination. So help us keep that perspective. Guard our hearts, transform us through the crucible of suffering so that we could walk worthy in the name of Jesus.